Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 18. Thank you very much for joining us again today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. And greetings to you, Christina, and welcome to everybody to Magical Medical Tour. Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I'll be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways towards optimal health. How are you, Christina? I'm great, Glenn. And yeah. you? It's been a great week with a full moon coming up. It's beautiful. It's so bright and wonderful. Uh, so many things going on right now. Uh, mm. Today I wanted to mention to you and to our audience about some of the things that our country actually does. Uh, and one of the things they do as a government is you've you've heard of the CDC, right? The Center for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. yes. Well, it's really now the, called the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. Mm. And part of what they do is they they gather statistics. They have a national center for health statistics. And their vital statistics report came out in 2009 for the United States. And the leading cause of death in the United States, they look at everything. You know, they gather all their statistics and they look at everything. And the leading cause of death mm -hmm. is uh, heart disease or diseases mm. of the heart. This was in 2009. Uh, it takes a few years to put all the stats together, but they have the preliminary data for 2010 already. And they're, again, the leading cause of death is... Um, a form of heart disease. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, I think if you ask the layman like me, it, it it almost seems like cancer because we always hear about cancer every time we turn around. And now you're just kind of throwing something at me that is uh, quite surprising. Yeah, and the World Health Organization also has it. You know, those statistics mm. were for the United States. The World Health Organization has it as a leading cause of death, specific type of heart disease, usually called ischemic. And they even break it down into uh, economic classes, a number mm. of other things. But I don't normally like statistics, but it, it makes a point for today. As the leading cause of death, we've got to look at this. And, and my very special guest today is uh, C. Allen Brown. He's a scholar. He's a professor, a clinical professor. He's a clinical and interventional cardiologist. He's a researcher. Mm. He also uh, runs, uh, he's the medical director of a coronary care unit. And he was uh, and is a captain in the Naval Medical Reserve, where he spent time as a battalion surgeon with the Marines in a war zone. Oh, my goodness. So I... I feel it a privilege to speak to someone who really knows this topic very well, and I'd like to introduce you now. Alan, welcome, and say hello to Christina. <laughs> hello, Christina, hello, and hello to you, Glenn. <laughs> hello, Dr. Brown. We're honored to have you on the show. Thank you. It sounds like we, we need 10 of you out there, at least. <laughs> you know, Christina, I've known Alan for a long time, and, and he works very quietly but acts like 10. Mm, mm. He's 10 people out there. He does so much for the community, for the mm. country, for people, for the medical profession. It's really great. So, Alan, 
what what I like to do in the program as a medical guide is to tell our viewing audience the path that we're going to take today. And I would like to suggest that at first we will talk to you about your personal life and find out how you became what you are and what you went through, etc. Then we'll get into some of the uh, important parts and aspects of cardiology and the heart, talk about some syndromes, and maybe get into a couple of controversial topics or topics of the day. Does that sound all right to you? Sounds good to me. Mm. Okay, so at the beginning, when did you know you were going into medicine? Why medicine? Why become a healer? And, and then why as a specialty in cardiology? And anything else you want to bring up in that area? Uh, well, Glenda was a relatively early choice for me, probably in junior high school or high school. Mm. And uh, I, I can't claim that there was any particular moment when the light bulb went off, but it was just something that had always appealed to me. So even when I was applying to college, it was with the intent of being a pre-medical student and going on to medical school. Mm. Wow. I actually uh, started as a nephrologist, a uh, specialist in the treatment of kidney disease. But at the time that I was doing my training, the field of interventional cardiology was just being created. Uh, during my early days in medical school and residency training, we basically had to uh, observe patients who were suffering heart attacks, try to deal with the consequences of the heart attack, but we were fundamentally observers. Mm. Uh, and then in the late 1970s and early 1980s, coronary angioplasty or balloon treatments became available. Uh, so uh, we were now able to pass a small balloon down to the area of the blocked heart artery, reopen the artery, mm. reverse or at least interrupt the heart attack. And that was a very exciting uh, opportunity for me. And it just happened at the right time of my training, so I made the switch and became a cardiologist. Beautiful. When, when we look at the heart, I believe that you probably know the heart more than most people on the planet. You've studied it, you've researched it, you treat it, you've seen it in health and in, uh, and in disease states. There are other people, poets look at the heart from a different point of view. It's about romance and sadness. And in literature, we see the heart referenced in many different ways. In certain Asian relig uh, cultures and languages, they, the same word for heart is also mind. So the heart-mind is connected. Uh, and in certain philosophies, the heart represents compassion, uh, forgiveness, mm -hmm. and uh, childhood trauma releases of all kinds. I'm wondering how you, with all of the knowledge that you have and, and the experiences you've gone through, how do you view the heart totally? I, I would say uh, there are several different ways that we can view the heart. One is the simple mechanics of uh, the heart as a pump that requires fuel, blood, and oxygen and then does work for our body. But that's probably an incomplete story. And uh, certainly there is the mind-heart and mind-body connection that you're alluding to. Uh, we see time and time again that uh, patients need to have the right mindset to 
not only treat or respond to medical illness, heart problems, but also to uh, travel the path of prevention. So we, we understand now uh, many of the mechanisms by which stress can injure the heart. And here we're talking about mental stress, emotional stress, physical stress. Uh, and we're also learning ways to try to counteract that, that effect. So uh, it's, it's uh, I think, too simplistic to look at the heart as simply a pump, although that's what we do oftentimes from day to day. And we certainly need to take the entire patient into perspective. Excellent. It seems that uh, we, as I alluded to in the beginning about the statistics, it being the number one cause of death, there are problems and there are solutions. Let's talk about some of the problems first with heart disease. What do you see are the main problems in our society with heart disease? Well, Glenn, I, I would first remark that we're, we're actually making progress in reducing the uh, mortality from ischemic heart disease or coronary artery disease, the disease that affects the heart when plaque builds up in the heart arteries. So there's been a substantial reduction in death and heart attacks. The problem, though, is that as a society, we're also dealing with the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, uncontrolled high blood pressure, and all of these things take their toll on the heart and worsen the, uh, the outlook for heart disease. So we've got these um, counterbalancing forces. Uh, we certainly understand that prevention has uh, is, is got to be a major focus. Because once the patient comes to my office already exhibit, exhibiting the symptoms or signs of um, coronary artery or heart artery blockages, uh, the cow is so far out of the barn uh, that it's hard to put the animal back where he belongs. You know, speaking of cows and animals, <clears throat> one of the things we worry about are the foods we're eating uh, as a possibility. Do you feel that there's more that can be done with the foods that we're eating and the way we're treating our plants and animals in terms of what gets into the diet, as you suggested? Absolutely. Uh, when we look at the major risk factors for heart disease, and here again, I'm talking primarily about the form of heart disease that causes heart attacks. Uh, Certainly, genetics, our family history, play a major role. Um, if we can identify those risk factors that are genetic, there are oftentimes changes we can make in our behavior, our foods that we eat, and uh, in our activities that can lessen the impact of those uh, family history uh, risk factors. There are things like cigarette smoking, which... Um, uh, while it's difficult to control, ultimately should be controllable in, uh, in most people. Uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, illnesses that can be controlled. The types of foods that we eat are very important. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of controversy in the, uh, in the media over the last several decades about whether high-fat, low-fat diets uh, Pardon me, high-fat diets are the answer, low-fat diets, high carbs, low carbs. 
that controversy um, is still ongoing. But uh, if you if you were to ask me what is fundamentally the healthiest diet for people to follow, I would say in general it's what's described as the Mediterranean diet. That mm. is um, heavy on vegetables, fruits, fish, lean meats. In fact, animal um, animal meats are basically a condiment on the plate rather than being the main item. Mm -hmm. well, I like that diet. <laughs> Not the Paleolithic diet, huh? Well, you know, right. Glenn, my, my family being part Asian and part Portuguese, you know, it's, you know, the Portuguese that loves the meat and the pork and, you know, <laughs> the duck with the skin on it, etc. And, you know, the, the Chinese side tends to be a little more, you know, vegetables and stir fry, so little less meat, to say the least. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, my father actually died of, of, um, of heart issues uh, when he was 54. So we saw him go through quite a gamut. And of course, at that time, he was, this is almost 40 years ago, he was waiting for um, uh, an, uh, the bypass, the heart bypass. And of course, at that time, it hardly existed, you know, so everyone knows this huge line for it, and he didn't quite make it. Um, but the diet, which is unbelievable, um, out of six children in the family, uh, almost, I do believe five of them are on high blood pressure me medication or cholesterol medication of some sort. The only one that is not is me. And I do say a lot has to do with the diet, a lot has to do with the change, as, as you say, Dr. Brown, in the habits of, you know, that, that tension that, you know, we're, we're kind of a very high you know, very high running family energetically. So, you know, that tension in the body and, you know, just through meditation and yoga and working out, it's sort of completely shifted um, where I was coming from. And uh, my family still at this point cannot believe that I'm on no medications at all. And coming from a slew of medications into my 20s, now it's like nothing except for supplements, <laughs> you know, but I do believe that fresh fruit, the vegetables, and, you know, which we're very fortunate here in California to be so privy to. Um, and uh, again, the, the low, low meats, uh, red meats and uh, chicken and everything, very little, as you say, a condiment. It, I think it, it works brilliantly. You feel so much better overall. Well, you're a, you're a good example of just what I was speaking of, even for those people who may have an inherited the tendency mm. to have diabetes, high blood pressure, the risk factors for heart disease, by addressing that in the way you live and the way you eat and the way you exercise, you can often significantly reduce your risk. Mm. Uh, perhaps, Glenn, I could take just a moment to uh, speak about the actual mechanism of a heart attack, if I might, because it might help us to understand uh, why some of the current treatments and recommendations are what they are. It was actually my very next question. Oh, we've so worked together for too long. You've, there you go. <laughs> you've saved me the answer. <laughs> okay. So please, go ahead. Okay. So what we're talking about, when I use the word heart attack, I'm speaking mm -hmm. about uh, damage to the heart muscle that occurs when the heart artery that feeds that muscle is blocked. And typically the blockage is created by a combination of plaque, cholesterol, calcium, 
kind of hard gristle uh, and blood clot that's intermixed. Now, it's a common misconception that the reason that most people have heart attacks is that that plaque gradually builds up in the heart arteries, progressively narrowing down the blood vessel until it finally closes off, much like our pipes and our water pipes in our home would block off if we weren't using uh, water softeners here in Southern California. What actually happens in the majority of heart attacks, and here I'm talking about anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of heart attacks, is that a relatively mild plaque that's built up in the wall of the blood vessel that typically is not sufficiently severe that it narrows down the blood vessel. In fact, it doesn't restrict the flow of blood. Mm. Typically, it doesn't cause any symptoms. And perhaps even more importantly, it's not detectable by most standard testing that we do. That mild mm. plaque cracks. And it's not that a fragment of it goes downstream and blocks the artery downstream. It's rather that a blood clot forms at the site of that crack or fissure. Um, and the blood clot either causes the plaque to suddenly swell or the blood clot actually forms on the surface of the plaque. And so a relatively mild plaque may only be narrowing the blood vessel down by 10, 20, 30 percent. Again, not enough to be causing any symptoms, not enough to be detectable by routine stress testing. Uh, cracks, the blood clot forms within minutes, and mm -hmm. the artery is blocked off and the heart attack occurs. And that's why you hear so frequently about people who appeared to be perfectly healthy, or at least they weren't having any chest pain or symptoms of, of the underlying heart disease, suddenly have a heart attack out of the blue, perhaps even when they're sleeping. Mm. Um, uh, and it's because of that, the term we use is plaque hemorrhage, uh, causing the sudden blockage due to a blood clot forming. Now, we're, we've also learned in the last decade or two that one of the reasons that uh, this plaque builds up in the walls of the vessels and that it becomes fragile or vulnerable to the cracking is because of inflammation in the wall of the artery. And that inflammation, number one, makes the blood vessel more vulnerable to further plaque buildup, and it makes the plaque that's there more vulnerable to that cracking or fissuring that we were talking about. So many of the treatments that we now recommend, whether we're talking about uh, diet or specific medications, are directed at Number one, helping to prevent the buildup of plaque, but perhaps just as importantly, helping to reduce inflammation in the walls of the blood vessels and in so doing, reducing further plaque buildup and preventing this blood clot formation in the heart arteries. Mm. Well, that was very good. I think uh, we all have a better picture now of what's going on. And the reality is, I think in a way that the concern shouldn't be really as much about the heart as about what's happening in the blood vessels, right? That's exactly true. And the, the time to address this problem is when the plaque is still mild, when we're still in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, when that plaque is beginning to form. As I mentioned earlier, once the plaque is built up in the heart arteries to the point where it's actually 
restricting the flow of blood. Mm -hmm. um, then we're then we're talking about more mechanical solutions to the problem, like the balloons, the stents uh, that mm -hmm. I work with, interventional cardiologist. But we know now that the the early plaque buildup, the early fatty streaks actually begin to appear in people's blood vessels when they're in their 20s and 30s. And that's mm. people need to be addressing diet, exercise, the other risk factors that are controllable to have an impact later in life and to ensure that when, when they're in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, life is enjoyable and not burdened by the consequences of heart disease. Mm. We talk about cholesterol, and there's lots of controversy even with cholesterol. It seems like many of us are chasing cholesterol numbers. We all now know about high density and low density, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, that, and yet there are some that, that talk about cholesterol not even being the real culprit and that we shouldn't worry as much about that. We actually need cholesterol in our bodies our liver actually produces it. Most of it we don't get from diet, as I understand. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Glenn, uh, you, you've touched on, on one of the key sources of controversy in the field of cardiology today. And, and I, I share your antipathy towards uh, statistics, but let me just quote a few of them uh, to you. Probably the most important is that half the people who have heart attacks and end up in our coronary care units in the hospitals have normal cholesterol levels. So I'll say That's that a big again. number. Half the people who have heart attacks have normal cholesterol levels. So there are a couple of takeaway mes messages from that. Number one, if your cholesterol is elevated, clearly your risk of having a heart attack is increased. Mm. But even if your cholesterol is normal, you're not immune from developing heart disease, perhaps because of this inflammation in the walls of the arteries that I mentioned earlier, that can lead to plaque buildup even when the cholesterol level in your blood is normal. We've also learned, uh, as you mentioned, that there's so-called good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. LDL, or low-density lipid, is a form of cholesterol that's being produced in the liver, released into the bloodstream, travels through our body's arteries, and ends up being deposited in the walls of our heart, our brain, our kidneys, uh, throughout the body. HDL, or high-density lipid, on the other hand, is cholesterol that is being picked up from the blood vessels in the heart and other vital organs, returned back to the liver, and metabolized. So one way to look at it is LDL you want to keep low. That's the undesirable form of cholesterol. HDL you want to keep high. That's the desirable form. <clears throat> so it's not sufficient to just look at your total cholesterol level. You have to look at how that total cholesterol is composed of HDL, the protective type, versus LDL. Some people have elevated total cholesterol because the HDL is quite high. In fact, we often see uh, the highest levels of the protect protective HDL in women uh, before menopause. Uh, others may have average 
or even low total cholesterol levels, but unfortunately, most of the cholesterol there is the undesirable type. The story gets a little bit more complicated because there are various types of HDL, various mm -hmm. types of LDL. I won't go into that too much uh, detail. There are other components to this story, lipoprotein little a. Um, I guess the good news is that whereas about 10 or 15 years ago, in order to have your cholesterol risk profile measured, um, the blood sample had to be sent to a special laboratory and the charge was anywhere mm. from $100. It's now possible to have those same uh, cholesterol subtypes measured in, uh, in your home uh, city's laboratory, your, your hospital, and the charge is nominal $50 or $60 now. I wonder if with all of this that you're saying, we should be changing our whole concept of the way we look at dieting and eating instead of fats and proteins and carbohydrates and calories. It should be about nutrients and micronutrients, and it should also be about the anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, uh, absolutely. The, the, the unfortunate thing is that Life and nature are never quite as simple as we would have been to. <laughs> uh, give you an example. We haven't really talked about this uh, beforehand, but vitamin E is a very popular antioxidant vitamin. And it makes sense that if the problem in our heart arteries is inflammation and oxidants in our foods and in our bodies lead or contribute to the to the worsening of inflammation, it would make sense that taking vitamin E, which is an antioxidant, uh, should reduce the inflammation and lessen the risk of heart disease. And in fact, there was a study done 30 years ago, uh, while I was still in medical school, uh, that suggested that vitamin E supplements in our diet mm -hmm. would reduce the risk of heart disease. Unfortunately, there have been easily a dozen major studies of what we call placebo-controlled, double-blinded study, where basically neither the patient nor the doctor knows who's taking what. One group of patients are taking placebo. The other group of patients are taking the active medication, in this case, vitamin E. Only the safety committee knows which is which, and patients are followed. And in study after study after study, vitamin E supplements have not led to a reduction in heart disease. Now, what has helped is eating foods that are naturally high in vitamin E. Mm -hmm. And so the message, at least for me, is to seek out those foods that are naturally healthy and high in natural antioxidants. Uh, it may well be, for example, and I, I'm not a chemist, so um, I, I may be incorrect on this, but my simple understanding is that the one of the major forms of vitamin E that you uh, get when you eat legumes and other vegetables is the so-called gamma form of vitamin E. But when you go to a store and purchase vitamin E tablets, that's alpha tocopherol or alpha vitamin E. It's a little bit different probably doesn't have the same protective effects. So I guess the general message would be seek out those foods that are naturally healthy for you. 
uh, and you may actually end up deriving much more benefit than if you take uh, supplements. Some supplements clearly beneficial. Unfortunately, with vitamin E, it, it didn't hit that mark. I think that's a really good point mm -hmm. that it's about food, and it's and we have to remember that the uh, word here is supplement. It shouldn't be used in other than as a supplement. Let's talk. I want to get back to some of the treatments, and we'll get back to the cholesterol and some of your treatment. But first, um, very quickly, how should someone recognize if they might be having a heart attack? And then I want to get into studies that you do for people, and then we'll get into treatment. Sure. Uh, well, let me say first, I've been in practice uh, over 30 years, and every year when I think I've seen every possible presentation or symptom of a heart disease, someone will come along with yet another presentation I haven't seen before. What we typically describe, or, or the way patients describe the symptoms of heart disease, will be heaviness, pressure, tightness. Sometimes they'll say, I feel like someone's squeezing my chest, or I feel like an elephant's on my, uh, st sitting on my chest. And oftentimes that discomfort is worse with exercise when the heart is working harder, it's calling for more blood. If there's block to the heart artery, the heart is not able to receive that added nourishment and patients have the discomfort. Unfortunately, that classic uh, symptom or those symptoms for heart disease occur primarily in men who are suffering uh, this problem. In women, oftentimes the symptoms are very atypical. Uh, women may simply complain of not feeling well, feeling fatigued, kind of out of sorts, while some women will have the classic uh, symptoms of heaviness or chest pressure. Uh, many times people, and this could be men or women, would mention that they feel short of breath when they exert themselves, lightheaded, nauseated. Uh, perhaps even have vomiting. So uh, I, I guess the common denominator would be discomfort or a feeling of uh, being unwell that comes on with exertion and then is relieved by rest. But we need to recognize that um, particularly women will often have very unusual or, or difficult to uh, describe symptoms that it uh, may make it more difficult for a physician to recognize the problem for what it is. Mm. Um, Dr. Brown, I mean, we also hear things uh, on the physical sense of like uh, the numbing of the left arm or, um, you know, more onto the, the physical end away from just the, the weight or shortness of breath. Um, and it's always said, well, if you have a, if you feel like your left arm is numb and everything else seems fine, <laughs> get yourself checked out right away. I mean, is that quite common too? I think it is common. Uh, of course, we'd want to exclude those people that are stuck on, on the LA freeways who have their arms uh, draped over their but, but yeah, exactly right. Oftentimes, that feeling of chest discomfort will radiate, mm -hmm. uh, the term we use, and it may spread up to the neck, jaw, through to the back, up to the shoulders. Uh, it may travel down one or both arms. Typically, it's the left arm that's involved, but it may be both arms mm -hmm. as well. 
Sometimes the discomfort is felt, um, or at least is described as heartburn or indigestion. And when asked, the patient may actually point to their upper abdomen as the location for discomfort rather than under the breastbone. Mm. So I think it, uh, it requires a real awareness on the part of both the patients and the physicians that um, as often as not, patients won't have the classic symptoms of heart disease, particularly when they first present. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the shortness of breath or this weight feeling uh, on, the, on the chest or anything like that, it go, is it usually over a span of time that we're looking at? I mean, we hear of the heart attacks that are sudden and people falling on the floor and you know waking up on the floor or not waking up at all. But with others do you, that are just starting, like heart disease, does this, is this over a span of time that they're continuously feeling this? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another good point. So oftentimes angina, and angina is the general term that physicians use to describe all of these symptoms, mm. last several minutes and then gradually subside. When I hear a patient describe chest pain that lasts for just a few seconds, I'm actually relieved since it's unusual for heart pain to be that brief. Um, I should mention, though, that uh, for many people, uh, these, these symptoms are often either misinterpreted by the patient or may not even occur. Uh, and easily 25% of heart attacks are recognized after the fact and were never, they were never uh, recognized at the time they were occurring. Mm-hmm. Either the had no symptoms, maybe thought they thought they were having a little heartburn or indigestion, maybe they thought they had the flu for a couple of days and they got over it. Perhaps the heart attack occurred at night when they were sleeping. Mm-hmm. And they thought, well, I just had a little bit of a nightmare and don't feel quite right today, but I'll feel better tomorrow. And it's only uh, later on when some form of testing is done that we learn that the patient has actually had a heart attack sometime in the past. So uh, again, I, the, the take-home message uh, would be that patients need to be um, good observers, and if they, if they find that if they know their body, they find that their body is behaving differently, particularly with any discomfort in the chest, and even more so if it's related to exertion, that's the time to contact a physician. Mm-hmm. That was one of the biggest issues in the emergency department, as you can imagine, as you so well alluded to before, Alan, about having think, thought that you've seen every presentation. Always we fear in the emergency department that we're missing uh a heart problem based on the fact that somebody didn't come in with a classical type of symptom and they did come in with different things many times. So that brings up the the next question about what kind of studies should people know about that can either warn them way ahead of time or in the moment of having the chest pain to decide whether or not they're going to have a treatment or procedure or go home that night from the emergency department? Uh, well, Glenn, first I, I would say uh, it's worthwhile for, physici- for patients to have a periodic assessment um, 
uh, by their physician just to check for risk factors for heart disease. You should have your cholesterol level measured. Uh, if there's any concern about diabetes, then the blood sugar and something called the hemoglobin A1C should be measured. Your blood pressure should be checked. So there are, there are uh, things that should be done on a routine basis before you're having any symptoms. When we see patients who are having symptoms that we think might be due to heart disease, um, uh, if we're actually uh, dealing with a heart attack, typically that would be um, <clears throat> revealed either on the electrocardiogram, the EKG, which is a, a test that can be done just in a few seconds, and it, it measures the heart electrical activity non-invasively. Typically, people who are having heart attacks will have characteristic uh, changes on the EKG. There's a blood test available to us now uh, called a troponin um, that also is elevated in people that are having heart attacks. The larger problem is to try and identify people who are having symptoms of blockages of the heart artery but have not yet suffered any irreversible damage to the muscles. So these are people who are at risk of having heart attacks, we want to try to intervene in time to prevent the heart attack. Mm. And so what we're usually talking about is some form of stress testing. Uh, and by stress testing, what I mean is uh, we'll have the patient uh, here in our office. Typically, patients will walk on the treadmill or perhaps uh, use an exercise bicycle uh, while we monitor their EKG, their electrocardiogram, looking for any symptoms of discomfort with exercise or any changes on the EKG. Our, our uh, dilemma is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, most heart attacks occur at the site of a mild blockage that's not restricting the flow of blood. So mm -hmm. the test in the majority of patients before they have their heart attack will be normal. So we have to, we have to understand what information a treadmill gives us and what information it does not give us. If, for example, a patient comes to me who is having chest discomfort, I can do a treadmill test, a stress test. Sometimes we combine that test with heart imaging, and we can talk about that in a moment. But Fundamentally, if the stress test is normal, I can say to the patient it, that the discomfort they're having is unlikely to be coming from their heart. What I cannot say is that you don't have any heart disease, there's no plaque uh, in your heart arteries. Am, am, I, am I being clear? Mm -hmm. You can plaque buildup, but if it's not restricting the flow of blood, it won't cause symptoms won't be detectable by routine stress test, yet it st still may put you at risk of having a heart attack. So let me just ask you one question. So somebody that goes to, to get a stress test and they say, oh, my doctor told me my uh, stress test didn't show I was having a heart attack, they could still be at risk in the future. It doesn't clear them so they can go out and do different things without still being careful and continuing getting checkups, et cetera. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, please continue. Uh, so now we're getting into the areas of uh, controversy. 
because what the, the, the what we're searching for is some examination, some test that will tell us whether or not patients are developing plaque before it's reached the point where it's actually restricting the flow of blood. You basically need to have a 70% blockage before it's detectable by stress testing. And, um, and by the time you've developed 70% blockages in heart arteries, you've got severe coronary disease. Well, mm. how do we get earlier? And um, one of the studies that was introduced perhaps 10 or 15 years ago is useful, but still very controversial. And that's the ultra-fast CT scan or CAT scan. It's an X-ray study that takes about 30 seconds. Uh, it's non-invasive. Patients can actually remain clothed when the test is uh, done. You lie down on the x-ray table, slide into the CT scanner. The CT takes a quick picture of your heart, as I mentioned, about 30 seconds, and you're done. And then uh, the radiologist can sit down um, and identify calcium in the walls of the heart arteries. Where there's calcium, there's plaque. Where there's plaque, there's calcium. And then uh, we can basically identify those people that are building up plaque long before it's reached the point where it's actually causing blockage or obstruction of blood flow. Now, the controversy is that there's x-ray exposure with this test. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last thing we want to do is um, unnecessarily expose people to radiation. Um, I'm not a radiologist. My understanding is that the amount of radiation uh, can be uh, reduced significantly with the current generation of CT scanners. So it's roughly the same exposure as traveling across country at 40,000 feet in an airplane several times. But still, you don't want to get any unnecessary x-ray exposure. The way I use that CT scan is I have a patient who comes to me who has an elevated cholesterol and is willing to accept the treatment plan, the preventative measures that we talk about, um, we're good. No scan is necessary. If I have someone who's balking and uh, says, you know, I, I feel good, I don't believe that I have plaque, I don't believe that I need to stop smoking cigarettes. I don't believe that I need to change my diet. Um, it, it, there may be instances where I'm recommending statin medications. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a good time to use the CT scan uh, if their scan is normal uh, with minimal detectable plaque. Well, I'm willing to negotiate. If, on the other hand, they already have evidence of significant plaque buildup, then I'll arm wrestle them to try and get them to uh, change their behavior. So now we have uh, somebody that has heart disease, and we have to, we've gone through diagnosis, and it's declared. What are options for people out there? We hear about stents and bypasses and even transplants. Uh, what's, what's out there? What, where's the controversy? What do you recommend? Well, understand that I'm a plumber. Uh, <laughs> uh, first, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that 
diet and exercise are the foundation for any treatment plan. So having said that, once we're, we actually have someone with coronary artery disease or the buildup of plaque in the heart arteries, um, let's first talk a little bit about medications. Aspirin, and here we're talking about a baby aspirin every day, is the foundation of treatment. Uh, reduces the risk of heart attack in most people with coronary disease by about 30%. The reason is that aspirin helps to prevent the buildup of uh, blood clots in the heart arteries, and we talked about that being the mechanism of most heart attacks. We have um, a group of medications called statins. Before you, um, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to stay on aspirin for a moment. Um, there is controversy about that also. It causes intestinal bleeding. So uh, is it something that people should discuss with their doctor, or is it something that people should just, when they reach a certain age, start taking an aspirin? And, and also, do you carry an aspirin in your wallet with you all at all times? Well, uh, the, the answer is I, you always have to balance the risks and benefits of whatever treatment we're recommending. And you're exactly right. Aspirin may irritate the stomach. It may cause gastrointestinal bleeding or cause heartburn or indigestion. As an anticoagulant, there is some risk of bleeding elsewhere. If, for example, you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, it could increase the risk of stroke. So I would definitely discuss aspirin treatment with your physician. Uh, if you have one or more risk factors for heart attack or coronary artery disease, then in general, aspirin will be beneficial. But it's generally um, a baby aspirin or perhaps even less per day rather than a full adult aspirin. It's not one of those things where if a little is good, a lot is better. Because the more aspirin you take, the higher the risk of bleeding complications with the medication, yes. Do you um, carry an aspirin with you everywhere? I take a baby aspirin every day. So hopefully I don't, I don't personally need to uh, supplement what I'm doing. A, a baby aspirin should do it. Statins. Yes. There's a lot of controversy here. Uh, <clears throat> people talk about uh, the side effects more than the beneficial effects. Where are you on statins? I believe, uh, I haven't taken a, a poll in the last year or two, but a couple of years ago, I polled all of the cardiologists here in Santa Barbara, and all of us who were the, over the age of 40 were taking a statin. Uh, so statins have revolutionized the field of cardiology and the field of preventative medicine. Having said that, they're not the perfect tool for everyone. Statins were initially derived from plants and uh, now are largely synthetic. Um, they've been manufactured to try and increase their effectiveness and reduce their side effects. In study after study after study, what we call those placebo-controlled double-blinded studies, statins have reduced the risk of heart attack and stroke by about 30 to 40 percent. Hmm. Keep in mind, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to get tangled up in statistics, but what I just quoted to you was what's called a relative risk reduction. So what that means is 
uh, if you're at high risk of developing heart disease and having a heart attack, you have diabetes, you have high blood pressure, you have a strong family history, your cholesterol is elevated, you're likely to have a major uh, benefit from taking a statin every day. If, on the other hand, your family history is benign, you don't have diabetes, you don't smoke cigarettes, you exercise regularly, um, you eat the kind of uh, uh, diet that we've been uh, talking about that's um, heart healthy, then you probably would not provide the same benefit from a statin. When you look at the side effects of statins, we're talking primarily about either irritation or inflammation of the muscles, the skeletal muscles, or the liver. Um, in, the, in the largest, one of the largest studies uh, done to date called the Heart Protection Study, 22,000 people were in the study. 11,000 of them took a placebo, a sugar pill. 11,000 of them took a statin, and they were followed for five years. And just keep in mind, these were people whose cholesterols were not particularly elevated. This was a group of people where when they went to their physicians, the doctors said, you know, you, you have this risk factor, maybe that risk factor. We're not quite sure what we should do, so let's get you into this study so that hopefully we, the community at large can, can uh, learn how to take care of people with your kinds of problems. Their average LDL was 115, which is actually below average. And, and during the five years of the study, the people who were on the stat medication had 30 to 40% less heart attacks and strokes. Substantial benefit. Now, if you ask them about side effects, interestingly, 30% of people on statins complained of muscle aching. Mm. 30 people on placebo complained of muscle aching. So mm. if you just even thought you were on a statin, develop muscle aching. <laughs> When you, Maybe it's they, the refined sugar in the placebo. <laughs> it's an inflammatory. It's the power of suggestion. When uh, researchers of the safety committee actually reviewed the blood test looking for evidence of muscle irritation or liver uh, irritation, the incidence was 8 in 1,000. So that's less than 1%. So... The, the measurable incidence of side effects is small, but the, the frequency of side effects is, is high when people even think that they're taking a statin. And, and perhaps more to the point, we now um, are understanding that people can have definite, say, muscle weakness or other issues with these medications, even when the blood tests are normal. So... Uh, when I'm talking with a patient about starting one of these medicines, uh, I'll usually express it as a trial. You know, let's try it for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. We'll see how your cholesterol responds. We'll see how well you feel on the medication. If you're doing well and your blood tests look good, there's no liver irritation, no muscle irritation, we'll keep going. If for one reason or another, either it doesn't have the benefit that we're looking for or you don't feel well on it, we'll discontinue it. But I tell you, as a plumber, uh, <laughs> putting in stents, 10 years ago, if we had a patient come in with a heart attack or we put in a stent in one of their blocked arteries, it was absolutely certain 
that we would be back doing it for other blockages that we're developing in the next two, three, four years, just because this was a relentless disease mm. that, that uh, the stents could manage but didn't cure it. Now that we're very aggressive using the statin medications in people who, who truly need them, and that's the key, um, nowadays someone will come in and have a heart attack, and as often as not, um, after the initial recuperation, we might see each other once a year, and it's a hello, how are you? Good to see you, and um, uh, I will see you again in 12 months. Mm. And that really do I think to the benefits of statins, perhaps reducing the inflammation in the walls of the arteries that ultimately triggers this disease. Mm. We should tell people that think that they should take uh, statin versus red uh, rice yeast. Uh, which has the same chemical compound that uh, some of the statins. They should be careful about that also and discuss that with their cardiologist. How do you feel about coenzyme Q10? Uh, I, I, I am in, in general a supporter, although the, the um, studies are um, inconclusive, I guess, to, at best. The, the issue is that there is a suggestion that taking statins may um, diminish your body stores CoQ10. The other name for CoQ10 is ubiquitone. It's ubiquitous. It's throughout our body. It's a cofactor that our body's machinery uses to, uh, to run our engines. And um, uh, taking a CoQ10 supplement each day may help to reduce the incidence of muscle aching or some of the other side effects that people complain of. I'm not personally aware of any downside to taking CoQ10 other than the cost of the tablets themselves, and they're pretty reasonably priced. Um, I'm not aware of any side effects. So in general, I recommend that people who are taking statins at least try CoQ10 while they're taking the statin to see if it improves their general sense of well-being. You're right. The uh, literature does not really scientifically prove that it's working yet, although we know that the body works, but the supplements are very expensive. And interestingly, uh, some of the original CoQ10 supplements were made with tobacco as part of the uh, process. So that's an interesting thing for me. Uh, have you ever treated anyone for a broken heart syndrome? We have. Yes. Uh it's a, it's a poetic name. Uh, the, the medical term we use is stress cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy means disease of the heart muscle. And this is uh, a sudden injury to the heart muscle that often follows emotional stress. Um, and it's, it's becoming more and more frequent. Perhaps 15 years ago, we might see one case at our, at our local hospital here per year. Now we're seeing several cases per month. Uh, patients will often present to the emergency room looking as though they're having a heart attack. Their EKGs are abnormal. Their blood tests are abnormal. Uh, if we look at the heart using ultrasound, we can see that the heart muscle is sluggish. But when we take x-ray pictures of the heart arteries, we find that the heart arteries are wide open. Um, and then when we 
uh, question the patients closely will often find, not always, but often find that there's been some kind of emotional trauma within the last several days or weeks, whether it's the death of a loved one, uh, an illness, a financial setback, something that's caused emotional stress. Uh, the good news is that the vast majority of broken hearts do heal over time. Um, and I guess that applies not only to stress cardiomyopathy, but perhaps the more general term as well. So I always ask my guests, our guests, uh, if they have a health tip for our viewing audience, uh, something that you've learned through your experience and your path and your journey. Do you have something you can share with us? Well, it's, uh, it's probably pretty mundane, but I, I, I try to live by the premise that uh, it's far, far easier to prevent problems than to cure them. Once <laughs> we're at the point where we're using balloons and stents, uh, heart artery surgery, coronary bypass surgery, uh, we're basically just trying to manage an illness that will be relentlessly progressive. So uh, I would hope that the audience takes to heart the message that the time to make the changes in your life or when you're in your 20s, your 30s, and 40s, time when you may feel immortal, but I guarantee mm -hmm. your right life, your heart will pay the price. Mm. Mm. That's a great tip. <laughs> it really is, and I like the way you said they should take it to heart. Absolutely. Oh, preventative. I, I had uh, that, that word preventative. I know that one of my mentors said it's not about preventative. It's just about overall wellness. If we can just keep that in mind <laughs> and, and look, take care of ourselves and be aware of everything that's going on in our bodies and the changes and not, you know, not close a blind eye and just be, be very, very aware of everything that's happening. It really all comes back down to that, doesn't it? I think so. Mm. Ellen, any final message you have? I know there's so many more things we could ask you and that you could enlighten us on. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you specifically would like to mention today? Uh, I only, uh, as we're about to uh, uh, celebrate the 4th of July, I want to give a shout out to all of my corpsmen of uh, the 4th Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. Everyone is home. I, I hope people are enjoying this holiday with their families, and uh, God bless. Oh, very beautiful. I am very grateful to our special guest, uh, Dr. C. Allen Brown, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. And I look forward to uh, seeing all of you again as we explore the healthcare galaxy. I'm sending a shout out to all of my teachers and healers for uh, taking care of me throughout my journey. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you so much. And thank you so much again, Dr. Brown, for sharing your wisdom with us. And I, this is just the beginning. You know that because there's a list of questions that are going to be showing up in the comment box because we didn't have time to read them out to you. <laughs> I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Namaste and happy fourth.